All right, you guys did Transcendence. Yeah. I got the boot last year. Rob started teaching that. I used to teach it, and it was one of my favorite classes to teach, but schedule-wise, it didn't work, and uh, I've watched his teaching. So I think, unless he changed it this year, I'm gonna reference some things that he said, and if he didn't say them, don't tell me. Uh, but uh, I took out the, I think Rob said this, or quotes that he used, so uh, just in case he doesn't use them. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, so again, the, the two, two characteristics uh, of the nature of God that we looked at last week and, and then this week are his transcendent nature and his imminent nature. Uh, and so today we're going to specifically look at his imminence, not his impotence. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're here for that, Stuart. Uh, I'm not just making a joke about God. Uh, Presley may have said something about his impotence by accident. Uh, but before we get into his imminence, I got to not say impotence too much because I'm going to just say it. <laughs> and then I'll be embarrassed. Uh, before we get into his imminence, uh, just a, a brief review of transcendence. And we're going to go back and forth uh, throughout the whole class. Uh, but God is outside of time and space. Uh, he can't be contained within creation. He is entirely separate from creation. Uh, there's a key creature-creation distinction that, that needs to be held with humanity and God. Uh, in other words, creation didn't emanate from the being of God. It didn't just flow out of him. It is entirely distinct from him, which makes his desire for creation really profound, that God existed before creation existed. Uh, and uh, as last class, Father Rob touched on the, the nature of his self-identification in the book of Exodus, I am who I am, is, is distinctly related to creation. It's distinctly related to the creation-creator distinction. Uh, and this God, uh, Yahweh, is essentially just stating that I am holy, I am otherworldly, that there is nothing that I could even be compared to that he is incomprehensible, and he's beyond anything we could imagine. Uh, our, our greatest imaginations are relative to only what we can know and what we can understand in creation. And everything that we can know and understand in creation is just a product of his creativity. So he is outside of even the greatest things that we can envision in our minds. Uh, a really fascinating argument for the existence of God is St. Anselm's uh, argument uh, on God being greater than the greatest thing we could imagine. So it's really fascinating to, to go into that line of reasoning. And so if there's something greater than the greatest thing we can imagine, he argues, proves the existence of God. It's a fascinating argument. But we can't compare God to anything within creation without falling short somewhere. So he doesn't, he goes, what's your name? And in, in the Hebrew world, name is identity. So what's your identity? What are you like? And he just goes, I am who I am. I'm holy. I'm perfect. I'm pure. I'm untainted in, in every way. So don't try to put me in a box or don't try to put me in a, a confined definition of, of what God is because I'm outside of anything you can comprehend or, or fathom. Uh, John Christostom quote, uh, he says this, he is the inexpressible, the incomprehensible, the invisible, and the ungraspable. 
There's so much beauty and majesty in the transcendence of God. It's a vastness. It's, it's meant to be astounding for us. It's meant to be mystical and mysterious. Uh, and we can try to fit it into intellectual uh, boxes. And we can try to determine how much we can know about him. Uh, and it isn't wholly wrong to do that. But there is mystery to it. And I think there just needs to be some peace in the fact that it is mystery. It's beyond what we can imagine. Further, what I, what I think is astounding about God is that what we can know about God truly is only what he's chosen to, to reveal. We can't know anything about God other than what he's chosen to show us about himself. How do we know anything about God other than to say through the scriptures or through what he shows us in our prayer life? We can't know anything other than what he desires to be known. So God is a self-revealing God. We know he exists because he desires that we know he exists. And desires is a really key point to this whole class, that God has no need. We know that. In, he is eternally content in the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Even before creation, he existed forever, beyond uh, the existence of even time itself. And they required nothing to make themselves happy. God didn't require anything to make himself better or more complete or more holy. But God in eternal trinity, begotten, not made, is fully content and fulfilled in and of himself, just his own existence, which again says a ton about his desire to create. He wasn't creating out of lack. He wasn't creating out of loneliness. But God desired creation. He desired humanity. He desired planets. He desired trees. And he especially desired puppies. One of the greatest parts of creation. He desired it and he willed it out of his just immense love. And so this is why we teach transcendence one week and imminence the next week. It's about God's nearness. So transcendence being that he's outside of time and space and imminence being that he actually chooses then to come within time and space to be with his people. And so though these truths seem incongruent, he is transcendent of all things in creation, yet desires to be near to and within creation it's in that tension that I think we really find the beauty of who God is. And Bishop Todd always used to use this analogy. I probably used it in corpus with, with a guitar string. That you hold a guitar string at two points of tension on the bridge and on the neck. Bridge and neck? That's right. Ask the guitar player. Bridge and nut. Nut. Bridge and nut. Perfect. Uh, but between those two points, when there's they're held tight, you actually get the beauty of the music. But if you have one end of the guitar string on nothing, there's no beauty to it. So it's actually between two polar opposite ends on the guitar and two tensions that you see the, the beauty of the guitar. And so it's, it's the same in his transcendence and eminence. You can't have one without the other in some ways. It's because of God's transcendence that his imminence is so beautiful and astounding. It's because he's outside of creation, because he's greater than anything we can imagine. The fact that he reveals himself and comes to us is remarkable and vice versa. Because we can have a real tangible, uh, meaningful relationship with God, the fact that he also is outside of our comprehension is even more mind-blowing in my, in my opinion. So it's first in creation is where we actually see uh, the imminence of God first and foremost. And again, we won't spend a ton of time on it. It'll all be review. But God made creation as a cosmic temple. That when Eden was made, it was the holies of holies 
where the, the God of the cosmos desired to dwell. In, in the midst of the garden, uh, he, he chose to dwell amongst humanity, and he put humanity in the center of the garden, in the holies of holies, to, to, to function as, as high priests of his cosmic temple. That humanity was made in his image to share in the guarding and the keeping of his earth, to share in his dominion, to bear his image. And so we see in the first chapters of Genesis that there is divine closeness between God and man. It says that God walked with Adam and Eve, that he spoke with them, and humanity dwelled in the midst of God dwelling on earth. We know, obviously, chapter 3, sin happens Humanity's cast out of the garden. There's separation between God and humanity. And, and nevertheless, God is continually making provision to be near to sinful humanity. He is continually making a way for us to enter into his sphere of holiness and to participate in his divine life. And so if you look through the, the scope of the presence of God in the Old Testament, uh, we talked about it briefly last week, and I'll be even more brief this week, uh, that we see... Uh, from, from walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, then you see through him entering into covenant with Abraham. Uh, he enters into covenant, covenant with Noah. Uh, he is entering into covenant with Israel and, and Moses on Sinai. They build the tabernacle so that wherever Israel goes, God's presence goes with them. After they have their own land, he makes a temple and he dwells amongst them in Jerusalem that the transcendent God chose to take up residence and dwell amongst his covenant people. That though sin changed everything, it didn't change God's desire to be with humanity. Sorry? Oh, sorry. I thought you were asking a question. No. My, my bad. Do you, do you want to share the note with the class? I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just... calling me out for stealing her pen, and I was calling her out for being oblivious. That was <laughs> Awesome. But the, the ultimate example of the imminence of God, we see it all through the Old Testament, but it's still not complete. We see it in the incarnation of Jesus, which is where we'll spend the entirety of our class today. Let's go to John 1.14 together. We'll be between John 1, Colossians 1 and 2. Psalm 104. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh. So Jesus, the, the eternal word of God, the, the second member of the Trinity, who is preexistent to all things in creation, that he is always existent as the word, took on flesh and dwelt amongst humanity. So when you, you look at the language uh, in the Greek, the word dwelt uh, is also interpreted as pitched his tent, uh, which it has obvious connections to the tabernacle. So when we look at the Exodus story, when Israel is freed from the Egyptians, they enter into covenant with God on Sinai, then the, the rest from from Exodus 25 to the end is God's instructions about building his home, which was a mobile tent. And so this is God dwelling again amongst humanity within the tabernacle of human flesh, 
fully God, fully man. This is John saying the word of God, the eternal second member of the Trinity took on flesh and tabernacled amongst humanity again. This is the, the hypostatic union of humanity and divinity. This is the, the two natures of Christ joined together in one person and now one nature, Jesus Christ, the God man, not partially God, partially man, not God in, in the appearance of man, not God just living in a body, but united divinity and humanity. It's not man with just some divine attributes. He's not just a really prophetic man, but it is God himself taking on flesh, becoming man and revealing his glory to mankind. And John says he was full of grace and full of truth. Let's consider together Colossians 1. Start in verse 15. Read to verse 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is the beginning of and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, he is the image of of the invisible God. He is the, 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 the reality of the transcendent God drawing near and manifesting himself again amongst humanity. The image of God, Philippians 2, 6, Paul calls him the form of God. Or in Hebrews 1, 3, he's described as the radiance of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of God and the exact imprints of his nature. The, the, the Russian Orthodox Catechism explains the incarnation in this way. The Son of God took to himself flesh without sin, and he was made man without ceasing to be God. St. Athanasius says this, the incarnation occurred not by conversion of divinity into flesh, it's an important distinction, not by conversion of divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of humanity into God. God became flesh, not by changing into another reality, but by assumption of the flesh. So he isn't just decreasing from divinity to humanity. He's calling up all of humanity into his divinity. Uh, famously, Gregory of Nazianzus says, what he was, he continued to be, what he was not, he took to himself. In becoming man, Jesus did not cease to be God. And in total love and humility, he took on flesh, brought up humanity into his divinity to reveal to the world the love and the mercy of God. It's beautiful. So God in taking on flesh remains fully God, fully man. 
He's drawing near to humanity. It is God coming from heaven to earth to be amongst his people again. If you think through the Old Testament, no one could see God. Moses saw his back, but he was actually hidden from seeing the face of God. We saw God was revealed in in fire, but we know that he wasn't just fire. He was revealed in a a pillar of smoke, but he, he wasn't merely smoke. But now God is imaged. God is visible in the person of Jesus. You could see him. You could see his glory. You could touch him. You could feel him. You could smell him. Probably first century Palestine didn't smell great. But the transcendent God is now attainable. He's touchable. You can talk with him and laugh with him. Image is really interesting language. It should, it should draw us back to, to the, the first narrative of Genesis 1 through 3 in the creation story. That Jesus is the, the image of God, but humanity also is the image of God. And yet, we're also told that you shouldn't have any graven images of God. So how does that all work? The Holy of Holies didn't have any statues or anything that depicted God. Because anything that would even try to depict God would be idolatry. The point is, and we'll get into it more later in the class, is that humanity was meant to show his likeness, to show his character. So we often give God anthropomorphic categories. So when he walked in the garden or when he talked, we, we, we think of God in Eden as a man walking around. But the reality is, as image bearers, we are theomorphic. We are, we are in the image of God, that, that we have physical attributes that demonstrate the essential attributes of the transcendent God. So does God have ears? Is the transcendent, omnipresent, omniscient God, does he have ears? I don't know. But what we do know is that we have ears because it shows that the essential characteristic of God is that he does hear the cry of his people. We have eyes because we're imaging a God who does see. So we are, we are made theomorphically in the image of God to show the essential character and attributes of God. So humanity images the character of God, but it's only Jesus, the God-man, who's fully God and fully man that images him perfectly, that he is the exact imprint, that Jesus images God in, in a way that absolutely no one else can. Paul in, in Colossians 1 says he is the, the, the firstborn of creation, which sounds like maybe we're, Paul's saying Christ was created, that he is the first of all creation, which is early church heresy. That, that is not what's being communicated. Jesus is preexistent. He is eternal. He is begotten, not made. But what's being communicated is that he is first in rank. He is first in sovereignty, that he rules over all of creation. For example, uh, in the Old Testament, Israel is called God's firstborn son. Talks about that in, in the end of Hosea. They weren't the first nation. There's lots of nations before Israel, i.e. Egypt. But they had a, a special rank in creation. They were uniquely called to image God to creation. Verse 16 to 18. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in, that in everything he might be preeminent. So by him, all things were created. By Jesus, all things were created. And the Greek word for all things, uh, it's really tough to imagine. It means all things, everything. It's a word of totality, just like all in English. <laughs> Whatever you can imagine all being, that's what he's talking about. So thrones, powers, leaders, rulers, molecules, everything is subject to Christ and under Christ. God with us, Emmanuel, takes on flesh, unites divinity and humanity, and rules over everything. And because all things were made by him and through him, and he holds it all together, even, this is, this is a, the fascinating part of, of Jewish thought on, uh, on the Messiah, that even before the creation of the world, uh, the, the eternal second member of the Trinity was active in creation and still holding creation together. So when you, you look back at Jewish thought on the, the future Messiah, even if they don't attribute it to Christ, uh, they have a, a saying that's, that's this, final things are first things. So final things are first things. So what they're trying to communicate with that is that in Jewish thought, even if they don't attribute it to Christ, they knew that God had a promise of redemption, restoration, and repentance before creation existed. They knew the final things of restoration existed even before the first things of creation. So Paul is connecting those dots and saying, Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the eternal second person of the Trinity, was involved in creation before anyone knew he existed. So redemption through a messianic savior was always the plan of God, even in the Old Testament Jewish mind, which means God didn't make up the cross and make up redemption on the fly, but it was known before all things, which is astounding. Therefore, even before creation, what does this mean in an imminence class? That God wanted to draw near and would draw near through Jesus Christ even before creation existed. He knew that there would be a Messiah, and they knew in the triune God that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, would come, draw near to humanity, and draw us up into his divinity. Older translations of Revelation 13 call him the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. Again, we're going to flow in and out of transcendence. And imminence. One verse 19, I'll, I'll read that again, and then we'll go to two verse nine. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, we're thinking through the transcendence of God, the fullness of the transcendent God pleased to dwell in Christ Jesus. Verse nine of chapter two. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of God pleased to dwell. So what does that mean? Does that mean the totality of God was pleased to dwell? Does that mean that all of the Godhead was in Christ and thus not omnipresent, no longer transcendent? Was heaven vacant when Christ was on earth? What does fullness mean? 
It's communicating that the full essence of God was pleased to dwell. I, I heard an analogy once. And uh, when I took a class on Colossians, I asked my professor if the analogy was good, and he said it is. So I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, and if you're in the Colossians Bible study, you, you've heard this. If I had this cup and I'm standing at Lake Ontario uh, and I scoop up water out of the cup, the totality of Lake Ontario is not in the cup. But the full essence of the water in the cup is Lake Ontario. Does that make sense? So it's not the whole of Lake Ontario, but everything in the cup is fully Lake Ontario water. So the, the fullness of God pleased to dwell bodily in Christ Jesus. It's not saying heaven's vacant, or it's not saying it's confining the vastness of the transcendent God into a human form, but the full essence of God is in Jesus. But then what is the essence of God? One scholar uh, is an ACNA bishop uh, named Grant Lamarcond. He's a New Testament scholar who, who trained with N.T. Wright for a lot of years. He described it to me in this way. God is not defined by human metaphysics. In the New Testament, there are two examples of God is statements. So God is this. One of them is in the Gospel of John, and one is in 1 John. First is God is spirit, and God is love. So what Paul's communicating in, in these texts, 119 and 2.9, is that in Jesus is the fullness of of God's love, the fullness of the essence of God's love manifest on earth. So the fullness of God's love then is pleased to dwell on earth amongst humanity. So that the fullness of his self-giving love towards us found fully in the person of Jesus. So in some ways, Paul is taking the nature of God, this transcendent nature of God, out of the philosophical, taking it out of just something that's theoretical and firmly grounding it in reality. He's, he's taking the mystery of God and making it tangible. The fullness of God is in Jesus. So the full essence of his love pleased to dwell bodily on earth. Again, I think it makes the, the tension between the two really beautiful. Let's go to Psalm 104. second to turn there. We're going to be done early. This is my shortest class on a side note. Try to pack it full though. <laughs> this is a creation account in poetic form. I think it's just beautiful. My first seminary class I took was on the Psalms. Uh, I wrote my final paper on Psalm 104. What I didn't know was that my professor did his PhD dissertation on Psalm 104. Uh, I took maybe six classes with this prof and never got more than a good job. And I'd ask for feedback and he'd be like, ah, oh, you did good. Other than when I wrote on his dissertation and it was a, but what about this? And I was like, I didn't even know any of that existed. So, but I do love this song, but it's made me not confident in it because I missed so many obvious things that only he saw. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. 
He lays the beams of his chamber on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations as that it should never be moved. I love the imagery of God creating. So we looked at Christ in Colossians who is involved in creation. So this is who is being described. It is the creative agent of the triune God, Jesus Christ. So when creating the cosmos, God is robed, not in jeans and a t-shirt. God is, is robed and he's creating the world and it's not done casually. He is clothed in majesty and in splendor. Amazing. He is clothed in supreme greatness and glory. He clothed himself in the very definition of kingship and gloriousness when he made the world. They wrapped himself with light as a garment. He's not talking about when he created the sun. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. A few days later, he made the sun. So he is wrapped in a light and radiance brighter than the sun. Think of our, our human weakness. We can't look at the sun. God is wrapped in something brighter and more luminous than the sun as clothing. He transcends light. He transcends the earth, the skies, and the cosmos. And it says he stretches them out like a tent. He stretches them out like a canvas. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. This was specifically what my prof taught on or did his dissertation on is the ancient Near East uh, kind of war imagery of, of God in this psalm. And we're not going to talk about that. But basically, God is using actually the elemental forces of nature as tools for his purposes. So ancient Near East gods were typically seen as storms. The psalmist is saying God actually transcends the storm. He, he uses the, the clouds as a chariot. It's amazing. So whatever you're, you're terrified of, God rides it around like a, a toy. The clouds are his chariots in which he rides on the winds. He is attended by servants, by angels, by spiritual beings that are covered with fire. Imagine that. Anytime an angel is seen in the Bible, people fall down and worship or they're terrified. And they always say, don't be scared. These are, these are just surrounding Christ as he rides on the, on the winds that he empowers his own divine servants in the most terrifying ways. Like, you catch this image of, of what God is like in creation. And, and then consider, on the other hand, the reality and the humility of the incarnation. That Christ left that glory and took on human flesh in his imminence on earth. So Christ, the word, who by all things were made, is, is described in this psalm as being glorious, as being transcendent of everything, but now he's clothed in flesh and blood. He was clothed in majesty and light, and now in the incarnation comes to us as a baby. And we look back at uh, verse 20 of chapter 1 in Colossians. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That through Christ, he reconciled all things to himself. 
making peace by the blood of his cross. So if we think about imminence, there is nothing more imminent than reconciliation between those of us in humanity who have destroyed creation through sin are now being brought back into him through his shed blood on the cross. And what I find absolutely most remarkable in the comparison between Psalm 104 and the incarnation and, and his work on the cross is that he chose to wrap himself in my sin and my guilt and my shame in his body, taking on everything that's vile of me in order to reconcile me to him. So he clothed himself in humanity in order for humanity to be redeemed along with all of creation, to be brought into his glory. That is the imminent heart of God. So as I meditated on the, the, the majesty and the splendor of God in Psalm 104, you, you can't help but be in awe of the immense contrast between the humility of the incarnation. That this God took on human flesh, that he, he left his heavenly home to be with us and to draw near to us and to draw us near to him in heavenly places. And if you, you think back to Jewish thought, it wasn't plan B. It wasn't a surprise for him. It wasn't just, a, oh, now, now what do I do after they ruined everything in the garden? But redemption was known before the beginning of the world. Final things were known before the first things. And John 1.14, he was pleased to do it. He was pleased to dwell amongst us. Pleased to experience pain. Pleased to experience sorrow, pleased to experience grief and rejection, to face slander and abuse and false judgment, pleased to experience violence and hatred and isolation. For us, the transcendent God pleased to, to reconcile us, to bring all of creation back to himself, to draw near, to be close and to assume humanity up into divinity. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of the love of God pleased to dwell on earth among sinners in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read a, a series of, of passages. Philippians 2, uh, verse 6 to 8 though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah 50 verse 6, it's a messianic prophecy. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53, verse 3 to 7. He was despised and rejected by men, a man full of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to read that one again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him endured the cross. So whatever we think of transcendence, which is really cool, and I, I love the, the mystery of his transcendence. Jesus takes out of the mystery and makes it really tangible. He, love and deity sacrificed for us to bring humanity close to God. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Amazing. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And, and this is the, the love of God known in Christ and known before the creation of the world, that God's imminent love is not mystical, though it is astounding. It is real flesh and blood. It's not just a theory. It is love embodied and poured out on the cross. It's love beaten, it is love broken, and it is love reconciling us back to God to forgive sins and to draw us near and to bring us into heavenly places in him to become like him. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he who is rich before the incarnation was made poor in the incarnation. Why? To take our poverty and make us rich. And it's not a, a discussion on finances. Though sometimes I wish it was. <laughs> Let's go back to Colossians 2. Read verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Listen to that again. Two key words, fullness and filled. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's the context of the next verse. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 10 is a massive verse. Uh, it's historically known as theosis. That the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ, and Christ is, again, we know the fullness of the essence of God is in Christ, and you have been filled in Christ. 
So again, think of the context. Context of fullness, the fullness of God's love in Christ. And because we are united with Christ, it means that we have also been filled with that love and divine essence. Though we are distinct from God in our union, we are taken up into life in God. Somehow, that's a mystery. But we are filled in Christ with the fullness of God's love for us and for the world. It's one of the most fascinating things to think about. N.T. Wright says this, Those who belong to him, therefore, have been given fullness in Christ. The same root underlies both this phrase and all the fullness in verse 9, meaning that God intends to flood the lives of men and women and ultimately the whole creation with his own love, power, and richness, and that he has already begun to put his plan into effect through Christ and by his Spirit. That is the Colossians and our inheritance in Christ, that they can want nothing more from any other source. Do I need to read that again? I've got a few quotes, so we'll, we'll get through them. Those who belong to him, therefore, have been given fullness in Christ. The same root underlies both this phrase and all the fullness in verse 9, meaning that God intends to flood the lives of men and women and ultimately the whole creation with his own love, power, and richness, and that he has already begun to put his plan into effect through Christ by his spirit. That is that the Colossians and our inheritance in Christ, and they can want nothing more from any other source. In other words, the, the vastness of the incomprehensible God has filled Christ, the fullness of of God is in Christ and in salvation, we are united in Christ and be, being filled in him. So in other words, we have everything we need for life in Christ through our salvation. There's nothing else right now and progressively through sanctification. St. Christostom says this, and you are made full in him. What then does it mean that you have nothing, that you have nothing less than he? As it is dwelt in him, so also in you. For Paul is ever straining to bring us near to Christ. And when he says, has, has raised us up with him and made us to sit with him. And if we endure, we shall also reign with him. That's the promise of the Christian life. That we have been given everything of Christ for us. Again, so if, if, when we're thinking of theosis, we aren't thinking of us not remaining distinct from God. We're not united with Christ uh, and becoming identical with Christ. But in our union, we are brought into divine participation. In our sanctification, in our day-by-day -day growing in Christ-likeness, we are becoming more like him every moment of every day. That's the essence of theosis, that God-filled Christ the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in the person of Christ in the incarnation, in the waters of baptism, we are united with Christ, given everything that is Christ, like his holiness and his righteousness, and day by day we are becoming more and more like him, in order that we would also reign with him. It's fascinating. Through God's divine power at work in us, this is the promise of the gospel, that we gain life and godliness that we are given every promise of the cross to escape corruption. 
It's God's action in and among us and upon us. And so all we do then is respond. We don't work to make ourselves holy. Christ has already done that work. We've already been united to him. We've been given the fullness of his love and of his goodness and righteousness. And it's just about our corresponding effort to receive what he's already done. That's the message of the gospel. That's how sanctification works. So I use sanctification and theosis interchangeably. Cyril of Alexandria, he writes this, the Holy Spirit works in us in his own way, truly sanctifying us and joining us to himself. And by this coalescence and union of ourselves with him, he makes us sharers in the divine nature, beautifying humanity or beautifying human nature with the splendor of the divinity. I'll read that again. I hate when I stumble. It's always harder to follow. The Holy Spirit works in us in his own way, truly sanctifying us and joining us to himself. And by this coalescence and union of ourselves with him, he makes us sharers in the divine nature, beautifying human nature with the splendor of the divinity. And he further in that homily writes that God inserts his own sanctity into us in our union with Christ. We, we, again, in the incarnation, he didn't just come to earth. He called humanity. He assumed human flesh up into his divinity in order that we could be partakers in the divine mysteries of God. It's first Peter. We can actually share in his divine nature that God's imminence draws near, not just to be around us, but to bring us up into him and to radically transform us into his likeness. That we are, are transfigured by divine grace. The transfiguration is one of my favorite stories of the gospel. Because we're also being transfigured into his glory. It's not conflating. When, when we talk about union, it's not conflating two beings into one. We're not just becoming identical to Christ. But we are imaging, what's, what's imaged in scripture uh, is all of these kind of organic analogies that, that we are like cellular member, members of a, a living and functioning body. We're like branches of a vine that when we're united with Christ, there's a deep intricate connection that doesn't mean it's the exact same thing. Does that make sense to everyone? So whenever you get into theosis, people think that I'm saying they're becoming God himself. It isn't, but we're becoming like Christ. Thomas Oden uh, writes this uh, of Martin Luther's thoughts on union, which I just love Luther's thoughts on this. I think this is him writing on, on Romans 6 in baptism. So close is, is this union that Luther would say with confidence, I am one with Christ, i.e. Christ's righteousness, victory, life, etc. are mine. And Christ in return says, I am that sinner, i.e. his sins and death, etc. are mine, because he adheres to me and I to him. For by faith we are joined into one body and one bone, in an inheritance which is by faith and whereby Christ and I are made, as it were, one body in spirit." Read that again. So close is this union that Luther would say with confidence, I am one with Christ, i.e. Christ's righteousness, victory, life, etc. are mine. And Christ in turn says, I am that sinner, 
i.e. his sins and death, etc., are mine, because he adheres to me and I to him. For by faith we are joined into one body and one bone in an, inher in an inheritance which is by faith and whereby Christ and I are made, as it were, one body in spirit. So we think back to, to phase one's baptism class. In the waters of baptism, everything that I have becomes Christ and everything of Christ becomes mine. That is the great unfair exchange of the gospel. That we are seen by the Father as Christ, holy and righteous. So in the beauty of imminence is that not only did Christ just come to dwell on earth and redeem us, he chose to unite us to himself in salvation. Couldn't be closer than, than the language of John, John 15, the vine and the branches. The language of, uh, of Ephesians, the, the head and the body. Deeply and intricately connected. Closer than a friend. Like I've said a thousand times, it's why I don't like the footprints uh, poem. Where it's two sets of footprints and then once in a while one set because he carries you. I think it's one set because we're united with him. There's a deep, deep connection between Christ and his humanity. Finally, St. Augustine simply writes, you are what you have received. You are what you have received. So in our, our reconciliation with God, we're united with him. We're united with him and filled in him with himself. So where humanity became poor image bearers, it's a restoration process of image bearing. It's the empowerment we need to continue with our guarding and keeping of the holy temple. That in Christ, we are becoming more and more like him, the true human, the true image bearer, and, and one day will be fully restored and redeemed to properly bear his image, to properly care for his temple. And we are reconciled to God. That we are not only just reconciled, his imminence is such that we are brought into his family. We become sons and daughters. It's amazing. And we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in the church. That Paul in Ephesians 2 and what I read last Sunday morning in 1 Corinthians 3, that, that Paul is using temple language to actually reveal the significant role of the church, of, of all of us who are filled in Christ, reconciled in Christ. That we are meant to be filled in Christ and then be the conduits of Christ's imminent presence on earth. That wherever we go, we're bringing Christ with us because he is drawn so near to us. That we would be so immersed in his imminent love that it would radiate from us to the world around us. Think of Acts 3. Healings. The outside the temple gate. Silver and gold have I none, but what I give to you, get up and walk. Or shadows. I think it's Acts 5. Peter's shadow sees a man healed. Acts 19. Handkerchiefs that Paul touched, brought, that cast out demons and healed the sick. That we would be so filled in Christ that it would just emanate from us in compassion, in empathy, in justice, in generosity. That we would image the divine attributes and characters of God in, in our actions, in our lives. And we see the whole story come full circle. That Christ takes on poverty himself 
to remove us from poverty and into the glorious riches of his kingdom, that when we then get to go out and participate in that divine nature and bring others out of poverty and into his riches. Which is, again, the, the pinnacle of imminence, that we are in him, never to be removed, so united that we could actually say, I am like Christ, as Luther did. I am being made more and more like him day by day, drawing near to him, filled in his love. And that we wouldn't go a day thinking that we're apart from him. I think, like we know in our minds, theoretically, we're not apart from him, but we can feel day in and day out that maybe God's not that near to me. But the reality of union and theosis is that there is a certainty in his work on the cross that he has brought us into himself. That he has filled us in him. And that, that, can, that transcends feeling. It transcends, you know, I didn't feel God in my devotions this morning. That we would have that kind of faith and that kind of awareness of his reconciling work. That he has drawn immeasurably closer, us, closer to us than we could imagine. And that, that his love is so immense that he left glory. That the God who is clothed in light and majesty took on human flesh to draw near to us and to restore us and to redeem us and to bring us up into his divine nature where we are united with him and made more and more like him day by day. It's just astounding. Let's pray. And then if you have any thoughts, I may not have any answers, but talk together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be with us in these coming hours and days. Lord, that we would have a, a sense of our being filled in you. Lord, we don't want to just think about your imminence, but we want to know, we want a, a deep revelation in the, the core of who we are in, in the reconciling work of the cross. That you, you became poor in order to make us rich in your glory and in your likeness, that we would be partakers and sharers in the divine nature. So we, we ask, Lord, that you would draw close to each one of us. Lord, that we would, we would see you and know you afresh. That our hearts would be reignited for you. Lord, as they endeavor to, to know you more through this journey of Corpus too. I pray that all of this would be worshipful for them, that they would be caught up in the, the beauty and the wonder of, of God. And that these tensions of transcendence and imminence would just strike a beautiful chord in their hearts, that they would be blown away by your vastness and also blown away by your closeness. And that every gift of, of their salvation would be um, revealed afresh to them, that they would walk out this life with confidence in you and your grace, which is unending, that we would all know the unattainable beauty of your love. All this we ask in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Like I said, a short class today. You know what time it is. A little under an hour. Like you threw us a bomb that's like, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do we do?
You spend the rest of eternity knowing it, living it. The joy that was set. The joy. Yeah. I think yeah, God is love. So that is a, a mystery that we don't comprehend as imperfect, finite beings. But no greater love is this than someone lay down his life for his friends. It's the pinnacle of, of love. And the fact that it was joy for him to do that should blow our minds every day. Uh, As a kid who grew up as a Christian, the gospel and the cross can become way too familiar. So I I think there's a a beauty, I think, and you can sense in the room uh, an awe of his redeeming work. And I think it's a fair question for why, why do you do that? And the answer is because he's gracious and loving and kind and he was pleased to come in the incarnation and he had joy to go to the cross for us. And if that doesn't make us love him, I don't know what does. It's a great question. Why? (laughs) That's, we all, that's a question we all should probably ask if we ever go, Oh, that makes sense. Probably taking it lightly. I wrote down this, but I, I gotta make sure I got this right. You said in baptism, he sees us in the same way as he sees Christ. Yeah, the Father. We were given his righteousness and holiness. Christ is our eternal mediator, bearing the wounds eternally of his sacrifice, slainness for us. And that's what the Father sees when he looks at each one of us, it's the sacrifice of Christ. Not our imperfections, because those were atoned and washed. It's unreal. Did you give a definition for imminence? Uh, I think I probably just broadly said nearness. No, I looked it up. The state of being imminent. <laughs> <laughs> there's imminent and imminent. So there's two. One is like a, a temporal time, and one is a proximity closeness. So it's I M M A N E N C E, and and I think it is just a closeness nearness. I I've looked it up at some point, but I didn't say anything specific. Well, I have you here. Give a definition for transcendence. Not sure if we got one specifically last week. We clicked up one liner. Oh, you did get that? Uh, I don't if we did, I wasn't listening. <laughs> For ten seconds. <laughs> so this was a meat problem. Imminence is existing or remaining within. It's believed in a God imminent in humanity. So nearness within, existing within.
so you said that, fi uh, that final statement, the, the final was the first. Final things are first things. Final things are first things. I think that's what it was. Final things are first things. So he knew that he knew that Adam and Eve would do what they were going to do. He knew there was going to be a redemption necessary. I tend to think so. I'm sure there are people that disagree with me. Uh, I, I don't think Jesus was plan B. I think, I think we have a romanticized view of Eden as being idealistic or ide idyllic, but it isn't as close as what we have with Christ. That's the beauty of the cross is they were at a, a morally neutral state with God. Uh, they were not made one united with Christ, not sharers of his divine nature. And so I think there is uh, the ideal of humanity is what we'll have in the eschaton where we are glorified living eternally with Christ, which is significantly better than Adam and Eve in the garden. That obviously brings up lots of big questions about sin and judgment. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like that Jewish train of thought. Uh, it seems fitting with the um, eternal omniscient all-knowing aspects of God. So personally in your theology, are you more Western Augustinian when it comes to original sin or Eastern Orthodox? I don't know. I go back and forth, to be totally honest. I heard, so um, there's a few distinct things. Um, so Augustine, the basics of the differences and I'll, I'll tell you the differences a bit, what I thought, and then someone said something to me once that undid what I thought, and I haven't been able to reconcile it. Um, so Augustine would argue that Adam and Eve were created as um, kind of superior humans to us, that they were highly intelligent uh, and aware, and uh, by that, they intentionally chose uh, sinfulness knowing. Like, it wasn't like they were innocent uh, childlike humans that were deceived, but they were actually superior human, human to us. And so they willingly chose sinfulness. Uh, and Augustine's argument would be that seminally, so in his loins existed all of humanity. Uh, and so in Adam's corruption, then every human is corrupt through him. So the difference between primal sin, which was Adam's sin, an original sin, which then plagues all of humanity. So we all then are born into sinfulness because Adam sinned and we were all seminally in Adam. Um, Augustine argues that you can see that in children. Children are inherently selfish and bad. Like one-year-olds throw temper tantrums, they wanna steal. Uh, and so he says, part of the, the fall is that there is concupiscence, that we all have this insatiable lust for more. So concupiscence is typically seen as typically uh, just sexual lust, but it's beyond that. It's, it's this constant craving and desire for more. And that's the impact of original sin, that we're all longing, like Adam and Eve, to be like God and to have more. So he based it on Romans 5, where uh, in, in Adam all died, in Christ all are made alive. The problem with Romans 5 is that he based his theology on a mis 
translation of the Latin um, in that. So the, the Jerome's translation of Latin in Romans 5 uh, says, in Adam all died. That's not the, the true uh, Greek translation. Uh, so the East, on the other hand, Christos in many ways more talks of um, humanity as innocent. Oh, so Augustine gets into real tricky, tricky stuff then. So if a baby dies, they go to hell because they're guilty of, of original sin, which the Catholic Church later, like right after he died, renounced that. So then he got into tricky stuff because he went, well, a baby's not really guilty of personal sin. They're just guilty of original sin. So then he got into like layers of hell, which got really complicated. So the, the church went, no, God is gracious. We don't, we don't know. Um, the, but God saves babies. He saves kids before they're baptized. They, they kind of cleared all that up. But Augustine took the logic to go, well, if they're guilty of sin, uh, you know, they're, they're sinful, go to hell. Um, so the East then was more, uh, humanity was marred, but we're not all guilty of Adam's sin. So death came into the world, uh, evil is rampant in the world, uh, but we're not all born guilt or ridden with guilt. I always tended to actually side with Augustine on original sin, just based on the nature of humanity. It's so evident. Uh, something someone said to me, I had a casual conversation with uh, Archdeacon Michael McKinnon, who's the smartest guy I know. Uh, we were Amos, no, Trevor, Trevor James and I were having a pint at an Anic Synod and uh, talking about original sin and debating it a bit. And Michael McKinnon said, oh, what are you guys talking about? And he said, oh, we were talking about original sin. And I said, you know, it's, this is kind of what I think. And this is the only thing he said. He said, it's interesting to me that, that the West and you would think that uh, Adam's sin was significant enough and, and powerful enough to corrupt even those who didn't want it. We we're just all impacted. But you don't think the cross then is powerful enough to impact those who don't want it. And I went, oh. So he's saying, you're saying Adam's sin is actually more powerful than the work of the cross. And it made me go, hmm. But it, I am actually saying that to be like, we're all marred and destined for hell uh, based on original sin. But then the, the work of Christ's cross doesn't guarantee um, salvation, even for those who didn't want it. And I went, oh, okay. So I think personally, I, I, don't, I don't know where I land. Uh, I think the cross, even Augustine would say the cross is sufficient for everyone, but we still have to receive it. But the point being that we didn't have to choose to receive or deny original sin and it just impacted us. Uh, so increasingly, I think I'm leaning more towards the East, though there is a ton about what Augustine wrote that made a lot of sense to me. Um, but have, you read, have you read any of like the Eastern perspectives on Augustine? No, but I just uh, put in my Amazon cart a book on that. They, someone, they just put a book, a, someone wrote a book on an Eastern perspective on Augustine. The East typically doesn't like him. Um, yeah, it probably is. I haven't bought it yet because I just don't have time to read it. When you guys say Eastern, I'm thinking like Eastern, like Buddha and all that. No, no, the, the church in, in 1052 split East and West, Roman Catholic and, and Orthodox. So you have Constantinople, Russia, Ukraine, Antioch. It, but the, really, though, it's beyond just geographic. It's, it's totally different worldviews. Uh, and, and the East is way more mystical and way more okay with mystery. And, and the West, we're more logical and rational. 
Um, so you'd have Christostom on the east, Augustine uh, on the west, Aquinas, the guys who really went into to like logic and philosophy is more Western minded. Because so, you guys don't mention Anaxagos all the time. Yeah, oh yeah. There's the, so, the beauty of the Church Fathers is there's gold in, in all of them. Yeah, uh, so that, that's a great question about Augustine. Uh, I wrote a, a pretty lengthy paper on original sin. Uh, and by the end was like thoroughly convinced on most of it. There's a lot of things that I don't like he gets into um, souls and whether we were all existent in Eden as souls and it just gets there's a lot to it. Um, but then yeah, Michael McKinnon just said that. So you think the impact of the fall is greater than the impact of the cross. And I went, no, no, I don't think that. But I get actually why that Interestingly, I never read that once anywhere. And that was just him actually walking by my table. And was like, oh, have you thought of this? <laughs> so, but he's got, he's got a, a postgraduate master's degree in Eastern Orthodox theology. So I'm sure it's, that's what they think. But he just said it and I was like, oh, I did not, I do not know. But when I, I had babies, babies are selfish. That <laughs> you see a bit of the fall in them. <laughs> and anyone who's had little kids knows it's true. <laughs> it's true. Were they selfish in the womb? <laughs> Some of them. Think of Esau and Jacob. A little tug in there. <laughs> so it would just be interesting if you had Augustine live uh, and uh, concerning when this like began. Yeah, my guess is he actually talked about it. I just, that guy wrote more than I think all of the church fathers combined, it seems like he wrote so much. And I did not cover, I haven't covered everything Augustine's written. I've covered 10%. But yeah, that's a great, that's an interesting question. I don't know what he thinks. You read my paper, I think, or I gave it to you anyways. When you gave it to me, I did not have a strong enough base to understand yeah. what I was reading. So I need to go back. To it, was a, it, it was a pretty thorough work. I, I, I did pretty well on that. But it, and, and thoroughly was convinced. But I, I genuinely don't know what I think now. I, I, I tend to think it's got, it could be some of both. Uh, I haven't studied enough the Eastern Orthodox stance. Um, I find that the Eastern perspective makes more sense and varied. Right. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So how, if original sin is passed down generationally, does Mary not impact Jesus? Um, and so then you get into things like uh, maybe it's only passed down through the men. That's a debate. Or uh, the Immaculate Conception, that it gets into other things. So I, I agree with you that the Eastern stance makes more sense of the, the virgin birth and, and why Christ wasn't marred. Um, it, it's a fascinating study. I, I'm, I'm in between answers. It's, it's, it seems too, too much for me to, to nail down. Okay, let's get back to this. <laughs> That's a good question. We have the fullness of Christ Right there. Yeah, we're, we're united in Christ. <laughs> and the, the journey is living into that. Sorry. It should, yeah. 
this is the, the journey of the rest of our lives is living into that and receiving that day by day and in receiving his glory and his goodness and his love, we are more and more transformed into his likeness. You received everything you needed for life and godliness in the waters of baptism. Which begs the question of why don't we choose it? I typically wait till life is really miserable before I'm like, oh, I should ask the Lord about that. I've tried a hundred times on my own. Maybe I'm not good enough to do this on my own and need a savior. So I think part of the art of sanctification is figuring that out sooner. <laughs> how, how dependent we actually are. So. I guess it, it feels petty sometimes. Like, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to depend on the Lord for everything. Yeah. I, as like a week in experiment the one day, I was like, I'm going to try, like, everything I'm going to do, I'm just going to ask for the grace to do it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I feel like I'm more capable than this. Because it's a Cause prideful it's, thing, I think. No, but, it, but it's like a, it's a moment by moment. It's like... You're getting in the car to drive, and it's like, Lord, would you give me the the grace to drive safely? And, and like, and you're just like, by the end of the day, you're like, wow, I, I should be more sufficient. Well, that on my own. that's what I think too. But then I'm learning that it's kind of a prideful position we take. That yeah. And if when you look back on your life, you think, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can do this. I can fix this. I can do this. Instead of going to Him first. Help. This, is, this is why your daily rhythms are important. Actually start the day that way. And you end it. That's why I know in the BCP it gives you options to, you only got to confess on one of those, it's the minimum. I had to got to do it both times. It's so sinful. But part of it is even in the morning, I confess that I consistently have a desire to do things on my own, to not need you. Please change that. Help me to be more needy. We typically don't like needy people in our world. Like socially, uh, or, or that's not looked at as a good thing. Jesus doesn't get tired of needy people, I don't think. And if he were here today, you would change. You'd want to change it in a second. He is here. No, I'm saying, why? Like, if he appeared, like, yeah. Why? Why are? Why are you not choosing to do that? I mean, that's that's the yeah. big question. Mm-hmm. Why are you not choosing to be like him today? Yeah. When it's at your disposal. Yeah. It's, I mean, but isn't that where we always get into trouble? We can do stuff on our own. Well, that's what he's saying. It's the first sin. Wanting God likeness. <laughs> being being like him. Again, like sorry. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think we set up like, oh, I'm going to be like God today. We're, tra- we're trained up to be independent and be sufficient. <laughs> I think society teaches that. Well, society teaches that. We know what's happened to society. Yeah. Yeah, and I think part of dependence on the Lord is trusting that he's made us to be capable people as well. Like, uh, there is that balance of we actually are image bearers and can go out and and do things in this place. Like, it doesn't mean you don't have any talent or any abilities or even strive to to do things well. That's all part of worship. But it's a difference between... um, you know, not doing anything because we are trying to be dependent and relying on Christ for the grace and strength to do things in his name and in his way. Um, so, for instance, I put a lot of work into sermons because I, I actually want to do them well and I want to be a clear communicator. Um, I don't think that's inherently prideful, 
because I'm doing that in his name and in his way. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a tricky balance, but it's things like, you know, when we try to be self-sufficient or when we think we don't need God because uh, we can provide food for ourselves and money for ourselves, we get into replacing him. But to even have prayers like uh, our First Chronicles prayers, we know everything we have comes from you. So it's even those kind of acknowledgements help set the perspective right. Um, and, and when I say God likes um, needy people, it's when we come to him in repentance. Like those are the needy things, uh, not people who necessarily go, I'm going to become useless. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference between going, I never need to work. I never need to leave the house because God will just do it. And I'm going to, we've had people in our church who go that route. We can rest in God. We can depend on God. Great. I'm never going to get a job. That's actually been the response. We're like, well, no, that's probably not what he means. But we do everything in his name and for his glory. Uh, and when we sin, we can come to him and say, I'm so sorry. I need your grace and your strength to change this. Because in and of myself, I can't make myself righteous. I can't make myself holy. But by your grace, you can give me the strength to stop sinning. So that's kind of the, the nuance of it. It's not, um, yeah, so, so the, there's dependence uh, and there is just, we're image bearers. So we can, we can do things because God made us to, to work and to do well in life and, and things like that. Like uh, God made me to be a priest. So I'm going to put actually a lot of effort into becoming a good priest because I want to honor him and glorify him and with my life, worship him. You, do you understand the difference? Yeah. 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 I mean, as you're preparing your speech, do you not you know, ask him to inspire you? Constantly. Yeah. So that's, yeah. But I still have to write it down right. and, yeah. and take it seriously and do it well. Yeah. Sometimes I succeed and sometimes I fail. <laughs> so, so I guess what I meant before what I was saying is like you start off doing things on your own and then maybe later you pray instead of praying first yeah. and then stepping out and trying some things. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm broke, like if I hit the end of my bank account, first step will be a credit card for sure. Next step might be trying to figure out things I can sell to make the money. My first step is never prayer. Going, oh Lord, I'm actually broke. Can you provide for me? My first step is to self-provide through debt. That, that's what I learned when, when Jess and I, uh, we had a, a stretch where I was working at the church part-time, doing construction part-time, got in a car accident. Uh, I, I installed granite. So I had whiplash and they found arthritis in my spine. So I couldn't do granite. Uh, I got hit uh, in a work truck by a guy in a work truck. So WCB went, we're not going to fight ourselves and basically gave me nothing and said, you should go back to work, which I could, I was at the chiropractor at least twice a day to actually just walk. Um, so I made 1300 bucks a month part-time here. My mortgage and land taxes were 1700 a month. So plus utilities, plus two kids, uh, insurance, all that. So I, I was probably short 2000 bucks a month, realistically, maybe a bit more. Uh, we had, I never wanted a lot of debt. So I, I never had a credit card more than a thousand dollars because I thought I can add cash to it. Like if I got to buy a, a flight for more than a thousand bucks, I can just put cash on it. Um, but I maxed out that credit card pretty quick. So then I had a year where I had a maxed out credit card. Um, I couldn't work. I tried to get jobs at like Starbucks. I couldn't get hired anywhere. It was the weirdest thing. Like I applied for fast food jobs, couldn't get a job. 
which I felt like, I think I'm capable enough to do fast food. Uh, apparently they did not agree. Um, yeah, and so I was still working here um, and, and we had, my son would have been two and a half or three, so Jess, Jess was home with him. Uh, and I actually just had to come to the conclusion of, oh, what happens when I don't have debt and I don't have food? Real, real spots where I would come home and Jess would be like, actually, all we have is peanut butter. I had peanut butter for lunch. I was like, okay, so what do I do then if I can't just pull out a credit card because I didn't have one and I couldn't have got approved for an upgrade because I didn't have a job. So how am I going to get more credit? Uh, I had to really learn the difference between uh, human sufficiency and, and godly dependence because I actually couldn't provide for myself. And my default would have been to provide, would have been to just, I can just charge a credit card and I'll pay it back later. Uh, I have a credit card. I don't think using a credit card is inherently wrong, but I realized I would go there rather than pray. So when that was taken away from me, I actually just had to pray. Uh, and we have so many miracle stories of one time Jess and I were fighting about money and, and what we were going to do. It's a very stressful time of our life. And Todd called me and said, what are you doing right now? I said, I'm just talking with Jess. He said, what exactly are you fighting about? I said, we're fighting about money. And he said, okay, the Lord told me to come bring you $500. And I went, oh, amazing. And so I went, oh, that's the kind of dependency where I, I had no way of providing it for myself. Uh, and so now, you know, I have a job and um, I have ways to provide for myself. I have a credit card that isn't maxed out. So if I ran out of food, I'd go, well, just put on the, the credit card. Again, not inherently wrong, but I learned in that season, that's actually somewhat self-provision because I'm not trusting that the Lord can provide. So we had people show up consistently um, at our house. We had a dream about you that you're struggling with money is a thousand bucks. I had seven cars given to me in the span of about four years. Every time a car would die, someone would have a dream, give me a car. It, it, was, it was unreal to just, oh, the Lord is actually providing and he took away any means. So we thought, you know, we're, uh, we, we could be behind on our mortgage, uh, wrapped up our credit card. And I had to pray to the Lord, if you want me to live a life of dependence, because I'll never be able to qualify for another piece of credit for the rest of my life, I'm okay with that. And he didn't. Astoundingly that year, so interestingly, I mean, you guys don't have to stay for this. I'm realizing I'm just talking about unrelated things. Um, it's the fireside chat. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, the, that year, I felt like the Lord said, uh, I actually want you to double your tithe. So we went from 10% to 20. Um, and every time someone gives you money, I want you to give 10% to the church and 10% to someone else who needs it. Uh, our neighbors were newly saved and um, they uh, were struggling financially and came over for prayer once and the Lord, or they had said, you know, um, the, the guy is going back to school for eight weeks and so they're only living on her paycheck and her paycheck was just enough to pay their bills, but none of the extra stuff they normally want to spend their money on. They're like, can you guys pray for me? And everything within me wanted to hit them because I'm like, do you have any idea? Like, I can't even pay bills. And you're like, you're upset that you can only pay bills <laughs> for eight weeks. Uh, and the Lord was like, give him money. Okay. Uh, and so that year we were, we increased our generosity. Uh, I didn't work. I couldn't work. I tried so hard to work. Um, we tried to ramp up my wife's photography business. There's just no grace on making any money. I said, okay, if you want me with horrific credit, 
That means I can never get a house. Never. Oh yeah, we owned a house, but if we have to sell the house and I can never buy another one, I never get a credit card. So I live dependent on you forever. I'll do it. And we ended that year with a total of about $2,000 in debt. Um, I mean, I was about short to about 2000 a month and that $2,000 in additional debt, uh, we knew exactly where it came from because say a thousand bucks would come in and our default was let's fill the freezer because it's a thousand dollars and we don't know when our next meal is coming. Uh, and both times within the day, something bad happened, a car broke and it was like to the dollar of what we bought and we weren't trusting the Lord. What was that money for? We just went, obviously the money's for food. So our kids aren't starving. So we just filled the freezer uh, and he went, well, that's why I say, give us this day our daily bread and the Lord's prayer. And so we, we just felt like, oh, we only went into additional debt because we didn't actually ask the Lord what that money was for. And both times it was like something happened in the car, how to get it fixed and something like that. Uh, and so we went, I bet you that two or three grand would have been entirely avoidable too. And it taught us a year of dependence. And in that year of dependence, I, I worked very hard. Um, I had worked here more than my, my part-time job and we increased generosity uh, and, and it, it really taught us that we would we would pray for food uh, we would pray for provision uh, and uh, I, I like to think about that because that's not always my default now because I have a full-time job and I have credit and so I could default to going back to self-provision um, but that was one of the the best years of my life looking back in, the, in that year it was easily one of the worst years of my life um, yeah it, just, it seems like um, wrong to go, well, God will provide, or we'll wait for somebody to give us something. That seems wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's counterintuitive. And I, I felt like my 25th hour is not the same as God's. So I feel like, okay, by this point, he better provide or I'm doing it on my own. And he wouldn't. And sometimes it'd be the next day and I'd be like, that's so unfair. <laughs> this is This is where it draws a line. And um, it, it taught us true and genuine dependence. Um, and, and it taught us that with what he's given us, we need to be good stewards. That's part of being image bearers is stewarding the earth. So when he gives a thousand dollars, we never once thought, what should I do with this? Lord, what would you have us do with this extra thousand dollars? And we had good intentions, which was let's not starve. Let's buy a, a freezer full of meat so we can ensure that we're going to have protein. Uh, and that was not his way. His way was no, if you got to pray for your food every day, you pray for your food every day. But that makes so much sense that you buy food. I know. That, like, that. But he knew what was coming. <laughs> that, that just makes sense. Yeah, totally. That's what we thought. And then the next day, the car would break. And he'd be like, oh, that's what it was for. So it took us two or three times before we learned it. Because we kept just buying food. So... Yeah, and then, uh, so anytime someone's like, I, I feel the Lord's calling me to live by faith, that is my one piece of advice. If you get random money, you ask the Lord what it's for. Because <laughs> it's for something. Uh, and, you know, or we'd even go out for a date. Like, oh, we should have a date night. That's not inherently a, a wrong thing. But he was, he was stripping us that year. Yeah, it was. I, I learned more about prayer in that year than the rest of my life combined. Easily. And he provided for us in, in bizarre ways. Yeah, really bizarre ways. Just random people showing up, random government money popping in. It's just, yeah, it was amazing. So uh, I think 
I, I think if we actually think about it, we're probably more self-reliant than we want to admit. So, and every time I use my credit card, I go, is this, is this self-reliant? Am I living above my means? Am I being a good steward? Or sometimes it's just, I get air miles and I want to fly somewhere. So I know I've got the money to do this, so I'll put on my credit card and pay it off. That's a great, fine thing to do. But am I using it as a tool to not, or in, in, in place of faith, or am I just not being a good steward? It's different with businesses. I get how businesses work. You, 90 days to get paid. Like I get all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I have to ask myself that question when I, when I use a credit card. Why am I doing it? Am I just wanting something that God hasn't provided for me? Am I unsatisfied with what I do have? When I use a POS thing and it says approved, uh, remove your card sort of thing, I translate that in my mind, go and abuse your card some more. Yeah. And, and, I, and I speak it out loud often to the other person and sometimes sparks a conversation, yeah. but that's that, that's that level of convenience that we can have that we don't recognize that we are abusing yeah. a privilege in a sense or abusing, uh, you know, figuring that it's going, that, that the, the money to pay it off is going to come. Yeah. 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 It, we can certainly do that. We've learned that the hard way. You just count, someone said they'll pay it. Oh, we wanna, my wife being a photographer, they'd be like, oh, we're gonna hire you. We'd be like, okay, sweet. It's gonna be 500 bucks. So let's just go buy what we need because they're gonna hire us. And then they're like, ah, something happened and I can't afford it. It's like, oh, now we have 500 bucks on our credit card. So that, that is assuming that the provision's already there when it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's not totally eminence related, but. <laughs> Good yeah, question. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. Yeah. Even Todd, like with his Oxford stuff, yeah. he, he got kicked out of Oxford m multiple times. So he'd pack up, pack up his desk, and the next day, a random check for 6,000 pounds would come in the mail. But God let him get kicked out. And I'm always like, God, <laughs> why wouldn't you send it the day before? <laughs> Which makes sense. But there's probably some humility in going, you're not paying your fees, you got to leave. Come back and be like, here's my fees. I'm like, all right. <laughs> but like, sometimes I think we need that. Well, and you know the verse about trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Well, your own understanding of that would be, huh, you probably just need to go home. Yeah. Like, give it up. Totally, yeah. So my, our understanding just screws things up quite a bit. My first seminary class. It was about 1600 bucks a class at the school I was at. And uh, I felt like the Lord called me to go to seminary. And I said, I, I just don't want debt. Like, I don't want to do it on student loans. I don't want debt for this. If you're calling me to do it, I need you to provide. And uh, so the day Rob and I had to drive to Regina for the, the class, it was a week long modular. And the day came and I didn't have 1600 bucks. I was like, all right. And thought, well, the Lord will provide. And, Every day I went to that class and they wrote on the door or on the whiteboard at the beginning of the class, don't forget to pay your tuition. And I was like, this must just be for me. Uh, and I thought like every day they're gonna kick me out. They're gonna be like, you haven't paid, you can't stay. And they didn't. And I didn't get the money until about a month after the class. <laughs> and then the money just, it did miraculously come in. Uh, and I was like, all right, that was, some of it was just embarrassing. Be like, I actually don't have money to be here. <laughs> 
hope you're okay with that. <laughs> um, but you're sure God wanted you to be there? I think so. I mean, I needed to, to be a priest. So I, I think he called me to it. And I don't think actually, other than maybe a few hundred bucks for books, hasn't been much debt. I haven't taken any student loans. Oh, hey, Steels. Okay, so I have a question for you. For Rob? No. Well, either. Anybody. Okay. Whenever you guys say, oh, God told me to do this, or God was leading me to do this, I ask this all the time. How do you know that's him and not just your own brain saying, oh, yeah, I'd say it's a combination of two things. Hope. I hope it's him. <laughs> and is it consistent with his nature? And is it biblical? Uh, is it... Um, and, and so I'd say it's those two things. Like, God's not going to ask you to do anything that's contrary to the scriptures. Uh, sometimes he asks you to do things that is really full of risk. Uh, and my default is always to then check my heart to go, what's my motivation? Uh, am I trying to do this because I genuinely want to follow him and be obedient? And if so, my prayer is always, I think I'm supposed to do this, but would you please stop me if I'm wrong? Because uh, I know human nature is that I can kick a door down. I can force a door open, but I don't want to do that. Yeah. So if I can check my heart to go, I genuinely want to be obedient and not kick down any doors. Um, and it seems congruent with what he's called me to, congruent with scripture and uh, his heart for, for me and humanity. Uh, I'll just gently push on some doors, and if they open, I'll go through them, and if they close, I don't fight it. That's my hope. But it is, there's times where I, I, I like to use more, I think the Lord is saying, or I feel like he's leading, because I always have that nuance of, I might be wrong, and I'm wrong a lot. But if I'm wrong, Lord, would you please stop me? Or would you please be gracious that my wrongness wouldn't impact anyone else? Um, yeah, that's the whole art of... Um, participating in the divine nature. Christ, for whatever reason, is okay with flawed humans participating in his mission and his purposes, and it means we get it wrong sometimes. Lots of times. Rob and I talk often about the things we say in these classes that we then go down and be like, I can't believe I said that. I don't even know if I believe that. Oh, Lord, please let that not impact someone negatively. Just say something off the cuff and be like, that's not what I want to communicate. Yeah. Happens all the time. We're imperfect. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That was the refreshing thing. I was just saying to somebody the other day that the refreshing thing about coming to be is how much you guys share. And you think as soon as you have that color, or I thought as soon as you have that color on, you must be pretty perfect. Hardly. <laughs> and, uh, you guys share all the time. So that's very... Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a good thing that none of the questions had anything to do with my content. <laughs> I feel like maybe I explained it so well. You're like, this is great. How about this other stuff? Or it was so bad. You're like, we don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about something else. But it was fun. Perhaps a, a little assistance in the references that you uh, of the quotes that you give, just saying uh, Saint Chrysostom or Anselm or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that just maybe put a well, some foreign ancient guy said this. Right. So maybe give us a little more context on that rather than just relying on 
of the other guy's words. Sure. Yeah, I can think through that. I don't have anything written down no, for I these mean, ones, it, but it just it happened this time here. I mean, yeah, and yeah, if God is ancient, then listen to some of the ancients. Uh, mm-hmm. What they thought about him is useful as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's not ancient; he's eternal. But. Yeah. No, that's good. I can I can work on that. All right, we're done. I'm done anyways. You guys can stay and talk.